Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Alberta Premier Jason Kenney joins us on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Mr. Kenney, thank you very much for the time. And uh, can we begin with the call last evening from Prime Minister Trudeau to the Premiers? What can you tell us, particularly as it pertains to the words from Mr. Trudeau concerning the continuing negative impact on COVID-19 and what he says is a reopening differently across different regions of the provinces in Canada and that the federal government is working very closely with the provinces? That how, is that all happening? I would say that the provinces are doing a very strong job of handling the public health crisis, um, and it is their responsibility. Uh, they are res- constitutionally responsible for health care and fund over 80% of it, or about 80% of it. So um, the, the we have these weekly conference calls. The Prime Minister, uh, in this call, the federal government seemed to be fairly assertive that there should be uh, some kind of co- federally coordinated approach to reopening. And I think I think the pretty strong consensus amongst premiers was that each region has to go at its own speed in its own way in reopening the economy. Um, and even within different provinces, there will likely be uh, different varying speeds of reopening. I can tell you here in Alberta, we have about 80% of our infections and hospitalized uh, COVID cases in Calgary. So we would look, be looking at, at reopening in other areas of the province more quickly. We think we're in a better position to make that judgment than people in uh, distant Ottawa. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I, I can understand the federal government wanting to keep an eye on how it goes across the country. I, my, my wish is that they had been much more alert to the risk uh, on something that they do control, which is the borders and border security screening. Uh, the best countries in the world in terms of combating the pandemic have been Uh, jurisdictions like Taiwan, Singapore, uh, South Korea, uh, that immediately shut down their borders on the first rumors of a strange flu in Hubei, China. They did not wait for the World Health Organization, and goodness knows they did not wait for the People's Republic of China, uh, to uh, close their borders and begin uh, measures to combat. And, And as a result, Taiwan, for example, to this day, I think still has only 300 confirmed infections with a population of 28 million people. So I think the federal government missed its responsibility early on here, uh, and we're doing as best we can to, to cope with the pandemic at the provincial level. And thank you for what you're doing for the rest of the country by providing PPE to provinces that need it desperately. Well, thank you. I appreciate you recognizing that, uh, Roy. We, uh, I, You know what? I, I'm proud of the, the common sense that has always been part of Alberta culture, and that we see in, in, in our public service out here. We have some, some just brilliant, independent-minded thinkers. They don't wait for uh, some official green light from <laughs> from Ottawa in order to do the right thing. So, for for example, back in, in early December, our head of procurement for our health system, a brilliant man named Mr. Jatindra Prasad, uh, heard rumors from some of his suppliers in China about a, quote, strange flu in Wuhan. And based on that information and his spidey sense, his intuition, he immediately started surging orders of personal protective equipment and other supplies. At the same time, and quite in, uh, uncoordinated, unrelated, uh, a brilliant uh, uh, scientist who runs our precision laboratory system here uh, heard the same rumors in December and began surging orders for reagent testing swabs and began preparing 
uh, for all uh, getting every bit of information he could on influenzas emanating from China. And so as soon as it hit, we were ahead of the entire world on testing and I think certainly well ahead of Canada on equipment. And as I said, I wasn't going to sit on warehouses of surplus equipment while we watched potentially our fellow Canadians in Quebec and Ontario uh, dying because of a lack of it. So we, we did send uh, millions of units out there, as well as 75 ventilators that we've shared with Ontario and Quebec. Well, thank you again uh, for what you've done. And I would imagine the federal government might have been aware of the information in uh, November or December as well. And uh, what well, they I will, did... I will say this. We, we, we've offered, because we have a big health system, uh, one unitary system and a really strong procurement system, we offered to, to basically be a conduit for the rest of the country because we've got long-term deep relationships with global suppliers and quite diversified supply chains. Whereas the Public Health Agency of Canada is not really an operational agency on a regular basis. So they're trying to get in there with the rest of the world to, to, to order supplies when they don't have the infrastructure we do. But, but whatever, I guess that's the federal government's choice. So they said no thank you. Essentially, yeah. I'd like to come back to that if we have a moment uh, at the end of the interview, Premier, but we have limited time. I do appreciate you coming on the program as regularly as you do. It's important that we hear you, the people of Alberta hear you on the show, on the people across the country. What is the state of the Alberta economy today, particularly after what happened to oil prices in recent days? It is, uh, I can't find the words to really describe the economic adversity we are going into Partly it's a triple threat, as I say, uh, five years of economic weakness uh, because of the uh, commodity price collapse. And I would argue a lot of bad, uh, highly politicized policies that hammered our oil and gas industry over the past five years. And then the global downturn of coronavirus that everybody in Canada is dealing with. But then on top of that, a the, the largest collapse in oil prices in modern history, um, we, uh, you know, uh, Western Canada Select Oil, which is our key product, has traded in negative prices on and off this past week, bouncing around recently two, three dollars a barrel. Like you can buy, it's it's more, it's cheaper than a cup of coffee in most many places. And the consequences, I just cannot describe how bad this is. Tough this is going to be. I expect, as I've said to you before, um, perhaps twenty five percent unemployment for much of this year here. That doesn't include the many people who will just leave the labor market or, heaven forbid, leave the province. I, I don't. Look, I'm, I'm not trying to be um, a pessimist. I am by nature an optimist, but I do need our people here to understand the challenging times we're going through. And I just re- remind our fellow Canadians, and, and, and Roy, I want to thank you for always being a, a, a champion of the Canadian energy sector, uh, living and broadcasting out of Ontario, a fellow who spent a lot of time in Quebec. You understand the whole country, and you understand that that much of Canada's prosperity depends on this, that uh, this is an industry that has paid $360 billion in taxes and, re- and revenues to governments in the past 18 years. It employs directly or indirectly half a million Canadians and people in every province. The manufacturing sector in central Canada Canada produces an enormous amount of equipment for the oil sands, for example. And... Um, we're talking about the largest subsector of the Canadian economy, by far our largest export industry. And by the way, if, if people in downtown Toronto think they're immune from the crisis here, well, I want to remind them that a third of Bay Street's investments uh, and the bank's loans are tied up with the Canadian energy sector. So as goes Alberta's energy sector, so goes Bay Street, so goes the core of the Canadian economy. This is a national crisis, not just an Alberta one. You have announced a senior Alberta representative to Washington. Uh, would you explain 
the role of your representative, and, and is your decision and action a direct commentary on a lack of confidence in the federal government and Mr. Trudeau to protect the interests of Albertans and the oil and gas industries? Well, Roy, the, uh, this is a position that's existed for 25 years, and uh, I, however, I am appointing a, a senior formerly elected person who I think will have a uniquely good profile in, in Washington. James Rajat was a Alberta MP for 15 years. He was chairman of the House of Commons Industry and Finance Committees. He chaired the Finance Committee during the global financial crisis in 2007 and 8. So he's been through something a bit like this uh, in a leadership position. And uh, he also uh, chaired, I believe, the Canada-U.S. parliamentary group. So he had very has very good connections in Washington. And um, this is a critical moment for us, given what's happening to the energy uh, markets and, and uh, industry. Um, I've been on the phone, as have my husband, my energy minister, pardon me, with an, uh, over uh, probably over two dozen members of the United States Senate, Congress, with governors, with members of the, of the U.S. cabinet, uh, trying to develop a coordinated North America energy policy to save the, the industry for the future. And so we need somebody on the ground. We've also, as you know, invested in ensuring the construction of the Keystone XL pipeline that will, when completed in 2023, allow to ship uh, nearly 900,000 additional barrels of Alberta oil to U.S. markets, representing a future for the industry. Because I, I'll tell you one thing on your question. I appreciate the federal government uh, took over the Trans Mountain Project after uh, political indecision had driven a private company out of the country. However, I'm not prepared to bet the future of Alberta on that one project. We need to hedge against it. That's Keystone XL. And we need our own voice in Ottawa, sorry, in Washington. Uh, that can help uh, advance that project. I will say this, uh, the Canadian, the newly confirmed Canadian ambassador to Washington, Kirsten Hillman, is doing a very strong job. She grew up in Alberta. She understands the importance of the industry. And I'm working well with Christia Freeland on these issues. She has no uh, illusions about the nature of the Russian regime or the OPEC dictatorships. And so uh, on the foreign policy side of this, I'm finding a good, a good ally in the federal government. It's good to know that because, uh, again, our energy sector just supplies so much of our GDP, and it just creates so much money and so much revenue for a federal government that's going to find itself in a in a huge amount of debt, as so many governments all around the world. But we have options. We have an ethically clean energy sector, and we should be taking full advantage. Um, you've also said, though, if I understand this correctly, that... Uh, the the Alberta representative in uh, in in BC, Mr. Rajat, is not going to be uh, meeting with uh, politicians in the United States who are advocating for a transition away from fossil fuels. Well, he might meet with them, and it's important to explain our position. But I was asked a question yesterday uh, by a reporter who bizarrely was from Calgary, and it sounded like he was from I don't know. Uh, Somewhere else, uh, he he um, wanted to know if we were instead going to decide to uh, end, effectively end the Canadian oil and gas industry and embrace the so-called Green New Deal, uh, which is an idea promoted by uh, socialist U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders, um, which effectively is, is to spend trillions of dollars uh, to try to replace the primary source of energy in the modern economy with um, windmills and, and, and solar panels. It, it scientifically, in terms of just the basic engineering and the basic economics, it, it, it makes absolutely no sense. But my point was simply this, uh, that, that uh, objective predictions about energy consumption say that by 2040, two decades from now, there will be somewhere between 70 million barrels of oil consumed a day and 110 million barrels a day. Let's call it 90 in the middle. 
Well, that's just off where it has been in recent years. And my point is this. In that world, yes, by the way, in the interim, we will continue to to see a development of, of other sources of energy. We've seen a huge in, increase in, in wind and solar since I became premier with zero subsidies, just on a market basis, and that's fine. But in that world where there is still huge global oil consumption, I would rather that this rights-respecting market democracy with the highest environmental and human rights standards in the world um, be a major supplier rather than abandoning global energy markets to the world's worst regimes. That is what the Green New Deal concept effectively would do. It would not reduce global production uh, or consumption of hydrocarbon energy. It would simply reduce it from democracies and market-based economies like Canada. That's not good for the world. It's not good for the environment. Uh, one or two more quick questions for you, and if I can come back to COVID-19. And the question about, uh, about, you know, how you are handling this issue in Alberta and what you've done for the country and what you've had to say, what you said to us today about your relative concerns about the federal government's actions or their interest in what Alberta can do. Uh, is your confidence in the Public Health Agency of Canada waning and uh, based on advice given by Dr. Tam and echoed by the Prime Minister? Do you have concerns about the PHAC? Well, I'm sure there's a lot of very competent and sincere, uh, people there, and uh, I don't want to criticize them personally. I I will say that I think Canada was naive uh, when we uh, listened to misinformation emanating from the uh, PRC and the World Health Organization well into March, and when other close, when neighbors uh, close to China who understand the nature of that regime uh, who have had better, bigger experience with uh, pandemics emanating from China, they did not wait for, uh, you know, the WHO to confirm what should have been obvious to anybody, to, be, to, to confirm the, the rumors that were emanating from whistleblowers in the Chinese medical community. And so Taiwan, South Korea, Singapore, and others, New Zealand, they shut their borders uh, as, uh, in, in January. Uh, and instead, we had... Uh, voices here in Canada saying that would uh, attacking people for even suggesting we do such a thing. And I, I think that was, un- let's, let me be diplomatic and say, I think that was unfortunate. And I hope that there is a serious, uh, look, we've all got to focus right now on combating the pandemic as it exists in Canada, rather than getting into, um, uh, into any kind of, uh, uh, argument about mistakes that have been made. There will be plenty of time when this is all done to assess those mistakes. But I do believe there needs to be a, a serious account, moment of accountability for the World Health Organization and the PRC when this is all done. And uh, finally, the, there is no time to waste as far as taking a full advantage of our opportunities with the with the energy sector, with the oil sector in Alberta, and uh, we should be doing that on a national level because ultimately we're all going to benefit from it. Uh, even the Premier of Quebec will admit that, I think. Yeah, and, and I, I, I do want to say this, that, that, that the Premiers across the country have been very strong in understanding the, the national implications of the crisis in the Canadian energy sector, and, and they have uh, stood behind our call for uh, extraordinary measures. Uh, to, to, to provide for a future of the energy industry, much like Canada did for the central Canadian auto manufacturing sector during the global financial crisis 12 years ago, standing behind the auto companies and their workers. Uh, and also, by the way, Roy, in t- 2008, during that crisis, that big recession, 
the one thing that really kept the Canadian economy uh, ticking and, and let us perform more strongly than, than pretty much any major de- de- developed economy was the Canadian energy sector performing very strongly right. at that time. So we've always Premier- been there for Canada, and we hope Canada will be there for us. At this time. On December 14th, 2012, at Sandy Hook School in Newtown, Connecticut, Adam Lanza shot and killed 20 children between the ages of 6 and 7, and six staff after shooting and killing his mother earlier in the day. Well, since that day, Sandy Hook Promise, a national organization, continues to be actively engaged in making a positive difference in the United States. And included in the Sandy Hook Promise initiatives is uh, helping communities identify potential mass shooters before they commit the crimes. Mark Barden is co-founder of Sandy Hook Promise and the father of Daniel, who is one of the children killed in that tragedy in 2012. Mr. Barden, thank you so much for taking the time and condolences on your loss and thank you for what you're doing for your community. Well, thank you, Roy. I appreciate you having me on the show. Thank you for your kind words and just let me first say that my thoughts and heart and condolences are with uh, the families in Nova Scotia who have suffered such a devastating tragedy. I I know the feeling way too well and uh, I'm so sorry. Thank you, sir. We greatly appreciate that. And uh, we look at statistics, for example, that are so disturbing. The United States has experienced 1,316 school shootings since 1970. That's 1,300, 1,300. Um, one of the questions, Mr. Barden, that is asked repeatedly, and each time it happens, the statements are made from people who know the shooter, and they say, boy, I never expected that from him, or usually it's him. I never expected that would happen. He's not that kind of person. At Sandy Hook Promise, you have uh, put together a, a plan and a program to identify these people, hopefully, before they undertake their, their vicious acts. Could you tell us about that, please? Oh, that's right, uh, Roy. Thanks for that. We we have developed, you know, I'll just back up a bit, you know, in the aftermath of, of that shooting tragedy, I, I, I will tell you, I will never be the same. Um, Daniel was the youngest of our three children. He was seven years old when he was shot and killed in his elementary school classroom uh, in the first grade at Sandy Hook Elementary. And uh, <clears throat> we, we um, nobody, no no parent, nobody should have to uh, endure this kind of pain. And, it, and, it, and it's forever, I will tell you that. And um, Sandy Hook Promise set out on a mission to prevent other families from having to live this pain. And, and the way we do that is by uh, bringing programs, no cost, into schools and communities um, to train students and teachers and parents to to know the signs, and we call them our Know the Signs programs. And, uh, start with hello is one of them, and say something is is, a, is the other one. And uh, we we literally do train students how to recognize warning signs, at risk behavior, somebody who may be on their way to uh, causing potential violence, and then connecting them to the help that they need before it becomes something more serious. And we do that by means of trainings, and we also have an anonymous reporting system uh, that, uh, that connects connects the tipster with a, um, a, a crisis center that's staffed with trained professionals uh, around the clock. Uh, we have now trained over 11 million students and adults in our Know the Science programs uh, across the United States and have intervened on countless mass shootings, other mass casualty events, acts of violence, and suicide. You have also been uh, very active on the issue concerning firearms legislation and gun violence prevention uh, in the U.S., like the universal background checks for gun purchases and responsible ownership. 
How's that been received? Uh, it's actually been received, you know, very well for us, uh, Ryan, that we speak in terms of of protecting children and making communities safer and school safety. And we do have a, a policy arm of our organization uh, with a wonderful staff that resides in Washington, D.C. And uh, we, we have passed federal legislation already. Uh, we help states pass, pass uh, state legislation around closing loopholes in background check systems, around extreme risk protection orders, uh, safe storage um, regulations. Uh, and, and these are initiatives that responsible gun owners uh, identify with and um, and are active in in their own uh, practices. So so we don't get a lot of pushback because we don't politicize it. Um, and if you identify as a responsible firearm, then these are practices that you're already engaged in. We have about thirty seconds, Mr. Barden. What do you say to the people who are directly affected, the people of Nova Scotia who live with this horror in their in their province every day now? Uh, I am so sorry uh, that you are now on this journey with myself and so many others. And um, myself, my organization is here for you in any way that we can. And I mean that personally. If if you, if you want to talk to me, I'm easy to find. Um, it, it's it's just there's no wrong way to do this. Just support each other. Uh, rely on the love of your friends and family, and uh, and take this one minute at, at a time. Each weekend, we speak with the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, Dan Kelly. And we've spoken with Dan about uh, the very difficult times that our business, small business community finds itself in. And uh, Mr. Kelly is back with us on the program. Dan, good to have you with us, and thank you for taking the time. And once again, let me ask the studio to connect Dan. Thank you. Happy to be here, Roy. <laughs> Uh, Dan, would you describe, last weekend we spoke about the challenges that were faced by a small business owner in Edmonton who owned a garage and her husband owned an energy company, a small energy company, in the oil patch. And uh, today we're looking at some changes that have happened, including the federal government saying 75% of rent is going to be paid for, I don't, I guess not everybody in small business. But what is the circumstance this weekend for the small business community in Canada after the changes or the developments over the last number of days? Well, look, at uh, the rent subsidy, of course, was really welcome news for a bunch of businesses that were hardest hit. Uh, it still, though, will only apply, as all the programs do, to a limited number of small businesses. This one, uh, it looks like about 40, 40 to 50 percent of small businesses will qualify for rent relief. And they really have that have been completely shut down or almost entirely shut down. So, for example, a restaurant that may have a little bit of takeout. Okay, I think we lost uh, Mr. Kelly. Can oh. you call? Are you still there, Dan? I sure am. Can you hear okay. me? Okay. Yeah, it sounded like you went under a bridge or some, oh, no. somewhere you disappeared. Uh, sorry, Roy. Uh, yeah, the, the program is a good one, but it only applies to about a half of the small business population. It, you have to have had your sales or gross revenues drop by 70%. So there are a bunch of businesses that unfortunately don't qualify, really those that have been ordered to shut down 100%. Those are the ones that have been help. Uh, but a lot of businesses, I had a member said, look, my, my gross revenues have dropped by 65%. He gets zero. The guy that has dropped by 70% gets a full 75% of their rent reduction. So, look, a good program. It will help thousands and thousands of businesses. But like all of the programs, there are many that are on the margins of it. And, and unfortunately, yes, it's an all-or-nothing approach. And 
we're suggesting that the government needs to make some changes. So what are the changes that the CFIB would like to see? What, uh, what would be appropriate, what would be timely for Mr. Trudeau to announce over the next number of days? Well, there's a, there's a few things. One, for example, this is not just a federal program. The provinces are kicking in one-third of the costs of it. Uh, so uh, it is, of course, <laughs> complicated by that. Uh, we do think that there uh, perhaps another tier of benefits uh, for those that uh, those that have seen a smaller reduction in their sales that might be appropriate. Another way is, of course, for provinces to backfill. And I, I point uh, at a really good program that the Manitoba government, the Pallister government in Manitoba, has introduced, and that is to fill the gaps. If if you if your business doesn't qualify for any of the other federal programs, the Manitoba government will come up with six thousand dollars to provide some some relief to you. Nova Scotia has a couple of programs along the same way. Saskatchewan has one as well. This is something that more provinces should be considering to, to, as companion programs for the federal for the federal subsidies that, that are out there to help businesses get by. Remember, right now, Roy, 80% of small businesses are all, are entirely closed or partially closed. So it is still very dark days for many of these firms. And Dan, we can't, uh, we just can't keep borrowing and borrowing and borrowing or funding. Uh, we need to. Obviously, we need to take care of what's going on and have to be cognizant of the threat of the COVID-19 pandemic. But we can't continue to just can borrow and keep the economy on hold. So the question that is asked of everyone, and I'll ask you, when does the economy have to open sufficiently? And I'm looking for a timeline here, not a not a not a not a health consideration. Um, that's a huge factor. But if we're just being pragmatic and looking at a dollars and cents reality, when does the economy have to start to reopen? It, it's got to yesterday. Be uh, yeah, no kidding. Uh, look, it's it's got to be soon. Uh, this this is the last thing businesses want is just more and more uh, government. Uh, welfare programs to help bail them out. That's that's what, unfortunately, we have turned to because businesses have been ordered to shut down, appropriate measures, I, I believe, completely. But we need to see these businesses start to reopen. And it, it is good news that some of the premiers are starting to talk about this. Uh, the Ontario government has been particularly slow uh, on this front, and I know that there still are a large number of cases here. But we're hoping that, that Ontario can start to relax some of the tightest restrictions. Many of our members have pointed out, look, if we can go to Walmart and Costco and line up and buy T-shirts and frying pans along with our groceries, why can't a thousand square foot business open up to have one or two customers in it at the same time with limited crowds and disinfectant between customers? Uh, it seems like if this is going to be a pathway, if we're going to be living with social distancing to some degree for the for a number of months, we've got to allow more retail and restaurants to have a, a sliver of economic income uh, as we go about this. We can do it safely, and I think we've learned a lot over the last number of weeks. I think it's time to start focusing on that. Uh, this may be a tough question to answer. What percentage, if there is an answer, what percentage of uh, the small business community is in sufficiently dire straits today, Dan, that they're not likely to recover, regardless of what the government may do. So, Roy, you're asking good questions, and luckily we have been going to our 110,000 members every weekend with, uh, with, with a survey to find out exactly that. And the data shows us that 5%, approximately, of small businesses have already said they are unlikely to uh, continue. 
And when you think about it, that's, there's 1.1 million businesses in Canada, 5% of those, the massive number, and they've already made the call. What worries me even more than that 5% is that 50% say that if the current restrictions last until the end of May, which is, what, about five, six weeks away, that they may not be here at all. At all. That's half of the small business community. It would, would could potentially disappear if we don't if we don't allow a trickle of economic income to start to come back in. And small business, to repeat for the thousandth time, is responsible for sixty percent of the jobs in this country. So, uh, if five percent say they cannot see themselves reopening, that's a big number of jobs already. And if it's fifty percent, we don't even want to contemplate that. No, it's good. Look, I don't see any, even if all of these programs are fully utilized and there are more gaps that are filled, I see no scenario by which there aren't tens of thousands of small firms across Canada that, that, that don't close their doors permanently as a result of this. This is, this is going to happen and the casualties of this are going to be massive. And it, it, it like these are people's lives at stake. They're, they're hopes and dreams. And I know the disease is a terrible one. We have to take the health and safety con- uh, the health and safety aspects of this incredibly seriously. The economic consequences, though, are huge. And behind every story like that, there is a family that you know. There's employees that are not getting paid. There are business owners that see their life stream and their retirement savings essentially disappear. Yeah. And business owners don't just start at zero; they start in the hole because they have mountains of debt that they that they carry with them. Poverty is a terrible enemy to have and poverty creates just awful circumstance when it suddenly rears up i was speaking with somebody the other day uh, dan a small business owner who told me that uh his retirement investment and this he's past sort of the i guess the accepted retirement age i don't know what that is anymore but he's over 65 years of age so but he said he lost eight percent of his retirement funds just from the market upheaval Never mind anything else, the shutdown. Uh, he lost 8% of his, of his retirement income due to the market upheaval. And I, so my question is uh, always, so do you think you can, I hate to say this, uh, do you think you can safely make the case that you will reopen? He said, I don't think so. Yeah. And then he started to cry. Wow. Roy, that's when you that's when you don't know what to say anymore dan well i you know we are at cfib uh, we have this we have a business helpline department we've talked about it before roy yes we typically get 50 calls a day we are 800 to a thousand a day many of these veteran business owners who have been through a lot of stuff uh who have broken down in tears as uh, as we've talked about before some contemplating taking their lives yeah. Those stories seem to have eased a little bit as some of the support programs Good. start to materialize. Good. But we just need to do more. Dr. Isaac Bogosh, who has been so kind and generous with his time, joins us each weekend to talk about the latest developments with the coronavirus and COVID-19 and and what's happening and where we're headed. And uh, Dr. Bogosh has also taken calls over the last couple of weekends, and uh, Dr. Bogosh, I've had so many emails from listeners who have questions, so what I decided to do was just say, look, send me an email if you have a question, uh, 
Can you answer a hundred questions in five minutes? <laughs> we can try. <laughs> I don't, you know, I think it's, let's, it, let's stay, maybe we should stick with quality over quantity on this one, though. Yeah, yeah, no, they're they're great. They're great questions. Good stuff. They're great questions, but uh, but thank you. You're staying with us for the balance of the half hour. So let me start with this. What is the most current information on COVID-19 and uh, its relative strength? And I'll ask you that from the perspective of uh, provinces starting to very cautiously lift the lockdown restrictions. What do you say to that? You know, it's uh, certainly some places in Canada are farther along than others. And, of course, Saskatchewan is in a much different place than in Ontario. And it'd be very challenging to be sitting in Saskatchewan right now uh, thinking, like, what are we doing here? We have so few cases. It's under control. Our long-term care facilities are in rather great shape compared to other places. Like, why are we, why are we in this situation? And, you know, and, and, of course, there's validity behind those questions. Those, those are great questions. And the answer is, you know, maybe there is a way that places can slowly start to reopen. One of the biggest concerns, though, is, of course, we know that there is travel between provinces. This is not the same as travel between countries where there's a 14 day period of isolation whenever you enter just about any country now. Uh, But, of course, travel between provinces is a lot easier and smoother here in, in, in Canada. And, of course, the concern is, is there going to be the risk for the introduction of this virus from outside of Saskatchewan? And and even within Saskatchewan, are you know, there's still it's still not it's still an issue there. It's just less of an issue now. So will there be transmission as this sort of lockdown is lifted in Saskatchewan? And essentially, you know, I've read the plans and I've heard people discuss the, the, the safety net in place and how it's going to be slowly lifted. But I really think the key point to doing this is, you know, the, like it, it, it's, there's no magic. Many people are sort of beating the same drum. You have to have the capacity to do this safely. You have to make sure workplaces are prepared uh, to, to do this safely. You have to make sure that there's the rapid ability to identify positive cases and their close contacts and ensure that those people are supported through a 14-day period of isolation so that they don't contribute to further spread and, and uh, further uh, growth of an epidemic. Um, but, you know, and of course, it has to be balanced with what's going on in the provinces around you and ensuring that there's some coordination between the provinces as well. I don't mm-hmm. think it's appropriate for everyone to be acting independently. All right. Let me ask you this question. This comes from Marlon. And I've heard this uh, in different ways quite a number of times. Marlon writes, very few predictions have been true, nor anywhere near the mark for that matter. Only prediction true is the upcoming socioeconomic disaster, which may be even worse. Yet Sweden does really nothing. Who's right? Who's wrong? Ooh. And it's, it's Merle. What do you well, say to that? Because we, we, you and I spoke about last weekend, we spoke about Sweden not having a lockdown, and I spoke with a, a professor from Gothenburg University who explained that Swedes are keeping physical distancing, but all their stores and their lives essentially are operational. So I think there's a few things to unpack. One is to say that all the predictions have been wrong is just a complete fallacy. There have been several predictions that have been wrong, but there have been some predictions that have been right on the money. So that's that's one point. The second point is, yeah, Sweden's often looked at as, you know, taking a slightly different path. And, uh, and of course, we know that the economic consequences in Sweden are less because many businesses are allowed to remain open. And they're sort of walking a bit of a tightrope between, you know, they did cancel some schools. People are physically distancing, uh, not necessarily by policy, more out of uh, just being told that, you know, this is they know this is the right thing to do. Uh, But, you know, if we start to really sort of 
look under the hood at what's going on in Sweden, and you start to look at, you know, deaths or deaths per capita, and you look at this, you know, to comparable places like to, you know, Norway and to, uh, you know, Denmark, you know, we're not comparing them to countries that are distant from Sweden, but you look at, you know, comparable countries, uh, Sweden is getting disproportionately impacted by this. And, and, and certainly the, the death rate in Sweden is far exceeds those. Let me, let, me just, let me just run some statistics past you here. I'm just looking sure. at what I've seen over the last hour. And, uh, and the Danes really also don't have a specific lockdown. We spoke with an economist there. Uh, I mean, they, they don't have, the country isn't sort of buttoned down, but, but there are expectations. But Sweden has 18,177 total cases. They have 610 new cases. When I compare that with Canada, 476 new cases today. Uh, and I know there's a disproportion there in population. I'm not quite sure what the, Swede, what the population of Sweden is, actually. About 7 or 8 million. I is it? Okay. Uh, total uh, total deaths in Sweden, 2,192. Uh, new deaths, 42. Um, so those numbers, yeah. people would look at those numbers and say, well, you know, they're actually lower than Canada, uh, which which has a lockdown. And so you know where that question comes from. So are they doing it correctly? Uh, more correctly than we are. I, I, I think it's hard to compare. It, it, it's, it's a, is it apples and oranges? It's easy to compare. It's easy to compare. Is it right to compare? I think the better comparison is going to be with similar countries in the, in the same neighborhood with you know similar social structures that are doing different things. And, and I think the right comparators would be you know, to Finland, Norway, and, uh, you know, and uh, Denmark. And if you look at those comparators, Sweden was, you know, initially early on, Sweden was doing okay, and we were thinking, wow, maybe this is—is is this going to work? And then about two weeks ago, they veered off the path. And relative to those other countries, so those numbers that I mentioned having an unacceptably high rate of those numbers that I mentioned to you, they are concerning. They say to you that the Swedes are not doing the right thing. I would say that that yeah, that's probably the case. And okay. in fact, when you actually go and look in Sweden and talk to Sweden, many, not all. But many um, Swedish public health officials, Swedish scientists, Swedish physicians, there is a, a pretty vocal dissent in the country saying, like, what are we doing here? This is this is really going to hurt us in the long run. I think, you know, what? at the end of the day, it's easy to poke holes right from across the sea. And uh, but but, you know. We won't actually know until this is all over. And, okay. and you know, I think it'd be very, you know, obviously it doesn't help us now, but two years from now when we're looking back on this, I'd, I'd be fascinated to see what the analyses show for, you know, Sweden versus the rest of Europe and Sweden versus the world on how they okay. manage this. Because, you know, this could inform the next the next pandemic, which, of course, there, there will be one, sadly. Dr. Bogosh, we're going to put the pedal to the metal, if you don't mind, and uh, I'll just hit, run some questions by you, and if you can give us a, a fairly quick response. I don't, want to, uh, I don't want to compromise your answers, though, because it's important. What we hear from you is significantly important, and I don't want you to give us the, uh, sort of the cut-down version, and, and, sure. and we miss something. Uh, this is from Ron. He writes, there have been suggestions that the virus will return in the fall or winter. How is this determined, and why is it suggested it might be stronger or more impactful? not going to return in the fall to winter it's going to still be here in the fall and the winter so that's that's it's not going anywhere so we'll definitely see it then and you know if it does ever peter out and we don't have a vaccine in the pre-vaccine era many people believe that this may come back in the cooler months just because 
uh, coronaviruses typically flourish in, in cooler months, so it might circulate much like the flu. That's just one theory. Do we have any clue? No, we don't. These are just this is just speculation by the medical and scientific community. And it did happen in 1918, right? Uh, well, you know that was yeah that was they had three waves. Absolutely. Well, many places had had that. It just depended on how they responded. But yeah, you're right. That's that's exactly it. And, and when people prematurely clustered together, they had larger waves in certain areas than others. And, they, and sometimes the second waves were even bigger than the first in some cities. Let me just squeeze this question, and it's been asked a number of times, but I'm sure it lingers and requires a response. And then we'll take a break, and then I'll get some more questions to you. From uh, Dan in Alberta, can my dog get or transmit COVID-19? Thanks. Great question. So short answer, uh, unlikely. Um, The dog's fur can get contaminated, so you don't want a bunch of people touching your dog and then you touch it. But the actual dog itself, it's very unlikely. In fact, there's some data from China showing that it's uh, cats and uh, ferrets are more likely to get this infection. It's not really transmitted easily through dogs, uh, pigs, or ducks. Uh, so, you know, there were some high-profile cases at a zoo in New York where several lions and tigers actually got this infection. Unclear if they can transmit it back to humans, but uh, they certainly can get uh, a cough and they can get sick from this. Do I understand this correctly before we take the break? We're still on a steep learning curve about this virus? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, we've only known this has existed for five months. We'd be foolish to think we had all the answers. Dr. Bogosh, uh, here's a question from uh, John. He writes, the provincial, interesting question. The provincial officers of health quote the numbers of infected people who have recovered, but there's no mention ever about the residual effects of having the virus. Are there ongoing long-term health consequences of having and then recovering from the virus? Yeah, great question. So short answer, uh, there's ongoing studies looking at the potential long-term consequences of having this virus. Um, it's very unlikely that people who had a mild infection that recovered from it are going to have any long-term residual effect. It's a very unlikely that that's going to happen. Not impossible, and certainly there is going to be long-term follow-up. But because we, it, we've, you know, the person who's had this virus the longest has only experienced it for five months, we just don't have that long-term follow-up. But that, that data is being collected, so certainly we'll have more to say on that in the, in the coming months. Is there something that, uh, while we've been talking, something that you've thought about that you want to share with us that uh, I don't want to miss if you have something that we need to know about by oh, just yeah. firing through the questions? God, I mean, uh, you've got an hour? But I have <laughs> Almost. These uh, serology <laughs> studies that are coming out, and uh, many people have heard that if you can use a, a certain blood test to detect what's called an antibody in your blood, that will answer the question, have I had this infection before? Yes or no? Because some people aren't sure if they've been infected with this. The problem with these antibody tests that is now becoming apparent is we're not entirely sure what the quality or the accuracy of all these tests are. The United States let many of these tests into the market by lowering some of the standards that they normally keep. And now it's very unclear what to make of the results of these studies. So if people are looking to the United States and asking the question, hey, should I order one of those tests? Will I answer, will I, can I see if I've had this infection before, yes or no? The answer is don't do it. It's too early to do it. We're not sure what the quality of these tests are. Much better tests will be available and we'll know which the, what the good tests are going to be in the next probably two to four weeks. These are going to be widely available in Canada in the next few months. Uh, and I think Canada is appropriately dragging its heels here waiting for meaning tests to come out where we can actually have meaningful answers from. 
Hello, is the ability of COVID-19 of infecting and transmitting through healthy people without them ever showing symptoms or becoming ill a new trait of viral transmission? That's a great question. Actually, it's not. I mean, I love. I know how it's extremely important to talk about these asymptomatic people transmitting infection with COVID-19. Certainly, that's going to be a component of this virus and driving the epidemic. But, you know, we do see this in other viral infections. And in fact, it's not uncommon. It happens in the flu, for example. And then other infections that people may or may not have heard of, something called dengue fever, that's a mosquito transmitted infection. I can go on for days about the different types of viral infections that can be transmitted in asymptomatic people. uh, But I don't think people want to hear me blab on about that. So the short answer is, this is not unique to COVID-19. It can happen in other viral infections as well. Question from Roy. Um, what are you looking for? What's the best case scenario that we might expect this summer? Okay, so number one, the curve not just flattens, but plummets, not just in Ontario, but also throughout Canada. So we have a reduction in cases. Number two, we can slowly open up our society again, and we're successful in mitigating the second wave because we have the ability to detect and isolate positive cases so we can continue on this path to normalcy. And number three, we have the rapid uh, discovery of a vaccine that's durable and effective, and uh, and that's our way out of this mess, and that this all happens in short sequence. That's my perfect world, but we'll see, we'll see if that pans out. So should I be planning a, a long multi-province car trip this summer or hedging my bets? You know, uh, sadly, it's still up in the air because we don't really know uh, how we're going to do in Canada. The curve appears to be flattening, but we need more than flattening. We need to actually plummet all the way on the other side of the curve to to really ensure that, you know, we can start to lift some of these restrictions. It it is up to us, and most of us are doing a good job, uh, but it's, it's taken a bit of time to see the reduction in the number of new cases per day, and we need to see that, and we need to see that sustained over time. We also have to ask ourselves, when do we allow international travel to, uh, you know, travelers to come into Canada unimpeded? When do we do that? What's the, what are the international indicators that would permit that? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I don't think that's a long ways off though, isn't it? Yeah, I think for the, for the foreseeable future, when international travel starts to scale up, at least in the early phases, I bet that international travelers will still have to isolate for a period of 14 days and demonstrate that they have a a place where they can successfully do that. I don't see that going away anytime soon. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.